Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 10. At sunset, Sebastian and I stepped across the threshold of Cateau Noir as Raz Robbie's esteemed guests. The reggae star was waiting for us, standing alongside the Sri Lankan butler Nived Bandara, who was greeting the evening's arrivals with a tray of reviving coconut water in Kaful Coco, decorated with hibiscus flowers. With a namaste and a bowed head, I accepted his offering as Sebastian and Robbie exchanged fist bumps. You saved my life, bro, the Rastafarian said to me. I can't thank you enough. We hugged, and I turned to the Sri Lankan. I'm sorry I doubted you, Nirved, I said. I apologize if my questions upset you, but now you know the man you saw, hiding in the undergrowth, was not the man you believed him to be. It wasn't Ras Robbie. Sadly, sometimes we can all be blind to our own prejudices. Although in this unique case it's true, one man with dreadlocks hiding in darkness might look very much like another. He looked at me quizzically as Robbie led Sebastian and me through the lobby to the cabana bar where the squeaky fiddle of a traditional contole band was filling the evening air. There he leaned to whisper in my ear and left us. Sebastian and I ordered drinks and carried them straight to our dinner table, surveying those around us as we took our seats. The restaurant's few tables were barely full. I'd selected a vantage point with a fair view of the entrance and beyond to the bar. So you know what happened here, you think? said Sebastian. Pretty much, I replied, sipping Campari and soda while perusing the menu. And the whole sad story will become completely clear this evening. After choosing two fish dishes and a good shabli, I went on. What distracted me was mistakenly thinking the American sisters were deliberately killed, because, let's face it, it looked that way. But that wasn't really how it was. And I can tell you now, their deaths were simply an unfortunate accident, a tragic mistake, the culmination of a sequence of events. Well, don't play with me, mister, said Sebastian. Say it. First, I said, you must understand the story doesn't start here in Mahe. It begins in Indonesia, where a property deal went sour. Some investors residing in Britain had been adding some boutique hotels to their growing property portfolio. But their attorney ran off of their cash, literally wiping out everything they built for themselves. Well, didn't they involve the police? Oh, they did, and they tried to sue. But the law in Indonesia is weak. The lawyer and their money vanished, and they faced massive financial exposure with no chance of recovery. But then they received news from a former employee, a trusted person from their own country, that would enable them to confront this cheat in person. It was a chance to claw back their losses, if they were bold enough to try. And that's what they did. So who are these people? Their names, I said. Of course I can tell you. Better still, you can see them for yourself. Just turn slightly and look at the Seishawa couple to your left. Seishawa couple? 
I see them, said Sebastian. Imsie ek madame Darrow Caddo, I said, Bella Caddo's uncle and aunt. They worked hard for their success, were building a hospitality empire from a base in Britain, started out with a guest house, added another and another, then moved their interest to the Far East. They'd taken a large loan and remortgaged their own home to complete their dream of expanding a chain of boutique properties across Indonesia. But it wasn't to be. But what has this got to do with the Bowski sisters and how they died, said Sebastian. And I don't see how, if they're broke, they would come here. They didn't know the Bowski sisters and weren't interested in them. They came here to find the lawyer who disappeared with their cash. Because as luck would have it, they'd received a tip-off that he was planning a visit. The Caddos made sure they were here at the same time. A chance to explain to their niece, Bella, that the gravy train they'd been providing for her had just hit the buffers. That's what the family was arguing over that evening in the bar, in the hour or so before things went badly wrong. My account was interrupted at that moment by the appearance of Antoine Lavigne, gliding into the restaurant accompanied by DCI Dugas and DS Laulam. The hotel manager seemed fretful, a fine sweat beading his brow as he cast around the room, gesturing to the couple near us, deep in discussion and oblivious to the police's arrival. The officers approached their table, soft words were spoken. There was brief protest before they rose quietly from their seats. I caught Antoine's eye and beckoned him to join us as Mr. and Mrs. Caddo followed Dugas out of the restaurant in silence, his sergeant trailing them. Antoine came to our table, visibly flustered. Bonsoir, monsieur. You must forgive me if I cannot stay long, but I trust everything is to your satisfaction this evening. I stood and quickly pulled a chair from a neighbouring table. You must join us for a drink, Antoine. We insist. But as I say, regrettably, I cannot. You will have noticed the couple just leaving. They have been arrested over the matter of the tragedy here last Saturday. No, Antoine, I said more firmly. You must sit and hear the story I've just been outlining to Sebastian. It's not a request, so I suggest you sit down. Patrick, said Sebastian, alarm written on his face. What are you doing? Antoine Lavigne lowered himself slowly at the table and I poured water for him. You'll need this when you've heard what I've discovered. You see, you made a huge mistake, didn't you, last Saturday night? You wanted to help some old and valued acquaintances, Mr. and Mrs. Caddo, the hotel owners for whom you ran a little property in Jakarta before coming here. I've read your career profile. You'd heard about their distress. You knew the man they wanted to find was coming here, and you invited them to stay. Antoine feigned ignorance. This is nonsense. I have no idea what you are saying. They wanted to confront the crooked attorney who'd robbed them, and you happily assisted them. They brought legal papers for this individual to sign, perhaps, but how? And you conceived a plan after hearing your friend, the executive chef Robbie's brother, talking knowledgeably about sedatives. 
You realise that you, the hotel manager, could easily slip the lawyer a cocktail that was drugged and then induce him to sign anything. And you knew this guest's favourite cocktail, that lurid green grasshopper, would conceal the taste of codeine to someone who was already heavily intoxicated. You mix the drinks yourself. The bar's closed-circuit TV will probably show it. But unfortunately for you, Dougie Summers was already too much the worse for drink and took to his bed. The spiked grasshopper was drunk instead by the equally inebriated sisters, Patty and Lois. This is a preposterous suggestion, said Antoine, suddenly on his feet. Sit down, Antoine, I said. Let's not make a scene. But this is complete slander, the hotelier protested. I will not hear any more. Sit, and I will finish explaining. He resumed his seat slowly, and I continued. When you realised this disastrous error, you informed Mr and Mrs Caddo, who sent their niece to beat down their door to alert them, but it was too late. Today, I learned a little about the clinical interactions of drugs, and I can tell you that the sisters, unfortunately for you, were what's termed rapid metabolizers of codeine. When mixed with alcohol, for those who possess a rare enzyme called CYP2D6, it turns to morphine, a tragically fatal dose. Dugas and Laulam reappeared discreetly in the restaurant entrance with two uniformed constables, spotted Sebastian and me sitting with Antoine, and approached us. Mr Levine, said the chief inspector, you must come with us. We've recovered codeine from the villa of Mr. and Mrs. Caddo, as Mr. Muir had correctly surmised we might, and the hotel CCTV leads us further to believe you may be implicated in the tragic events here last weekend. I can arrest you here or later. You must decide. Instantly, the colour drained from Lavigne's face, his eyes darting first to the police officers and then to me as he lurched forward and snatched up a fruit knife from the table. Glassware and the table's floral centrepiece flew sideways as he thrust the blade towards me to horrified gasps from other guests around us. Pandemonium broke out. Diners rose to their feet as the constables rushed forward and wrestled the hotel manager to the floor. What have you anglais? Lavigne spat at me as they cuffed him. It was Summers who began this. I told you to look at him. He's the one that's truly guilty. I wiped my lip. I'm pretty sure he's feeling it now, I said, noticing that the American lawyer had taken a stool in the bar. His greed or negligence ultimately cost his friends' lives. But it was your poison, Antoine, not his. He grimaced, turning away as the officers manhandled him out of the restaurant. Oh, wow, said Sebastien. This is too much. What I've realised, I said, is so much of what went wrong here last weekend was the consequence of unintended actions. Sometimes that's the price we must pay for ambition and success. This extraordinary country has lost its time of innocence. It's no longer a remote and sleepy paradise of fishermen and farmers, insulated from global forces. And the encroaching outside world can sometimes produce unimagined effects, in this case not only resulting in two deaths. Come, I said, pulling myself to my feet. 
there's more yet. Dougie Summers, still dressed for the poolside, sat alone and apart, his solitude made more poignant by what I had that afternoon learned about him. Though brash and impatient, he was visibly consumed by both deep sorrow for the loss of his friends, but also, I now realise, something else too, perhaps a flicker of shame. I left Sebastian for a moment to speak with him. I hear you're leaving tomorrow, I said. Right, said the American. Too bad I won't be taking fond memories. No doubt, I said. Just your friends' bodies, some unlucky investors' hard-earned cash, and maybe, just maybe perhaps, a guilty conscience. That's quite some vacation. I messed up real bad, I know it, said Dougie, gazing into his cocktail. But it was never my intention. I always wanted to make things right with the caddos. It just didn't work out. But that's how it goes in the real world, Patrick. So spare me the judgment. Safe travels, I said, turning away from him, then hesitating. I wanted to say more, much more, but decided against it. There seemed so little point. I turned away and rejoined Sebastian with Robbie on the other side of the bar. And now, I said, we must all go to the kitchen. You're supposed to be celebrating tonight, said Robbie as we strolled back through the restaurant towards the hotel's back of house. Why are you taking us out here? We will celebrate, I said, and you must celebrate with us. After we've had one last conversation, perhaps the most important conversation of all. We passed through the clattering kitchen, where, amidst steaming pots and sizzling frying pans, staff were already sharing details of the arrests. We stepped out into the night air. It was raining heavily, but there we found Rich, his chef's whites drenched, surrounded by mounds of kitchen rubbish. He was digging frantically through the hotel's dustbins. I reached into my pocket. Looking for this? I said, holding up a set of beaded dreadlocks. Or perhaps a wig just like it. Rich suspended his search and straightened, staring at the wig in my hand. For a moment he seemed dazed, recognition dawning. He lunged for it, but I snatched it away. I bought this at a hair and nail salon in town, I said, and it really wouldn't suit me. But on you, Rich, you'd look just like your twin brother, wouldn't you? Look, it's not what you think, he spluttered. I would never do my brother any harm. He turned to his twin. Nor but you know that, he said, pleading with him. Robbie stood gazing at Rich in silence, hurt and confusion in his eyes. He knows that, I said, deep down. But you coveted Robbie's success, didn't you? You resented his popularity and his luck with women. The Americans were quite smitten, weren't they? So you left Robbie's party early that night and gambled that two drunk white women would never tell you apart if you posed as him. But your ambition to spend the night in their villa failed when they became heavily drunk. The problem was the staff had already noticed a dreadlocked man with them in the bar, which pointed suspicion at Robbie. 
Seeing Bella Caddo and Dougie Summers arguing outside their villa, you hid in panic in the undergrowth, where you mislaid Robbie's identity bracelet, an accessory that you'd taken from him months earlier to use for just such an escapade. Hey, I love Norbert, he said. He's my twin, but his life, his choices, the success you talk about, he doesn't deserve it. Come on, Robbie, you've never been a hard worker, not since we were teenagers. Drugs and reggae, that's what you do. And it's sending the wrong message to kids in this country. It's holding them back. I've worked damned hard for what I've achieved, the way it should be for everyone here. I turned to Sebastian. See what I mean? The price of well-directed ambition can be high, I said, before returning my gaze to the chef. But sadly, Rich, your hard work wasn't enough to complete that degree in pharmacy at Nottingham. You dropped out and switched instead to cookery. A chef with an encyclopedic knowledge of analgesics, as you clearly showed on the beach when I twisted my ankle, remember? That was quite some recipe you reeled off, more like a pharmaceutical prescription. And unintentionally, no doubt, what you knew about codeine you shared in casual conversation with your friend Antoine Lavigne. For him, though, a little knowledge proved a very dangerous thing. Robbie broke his silence at last. I forgive you, bro, he said quietly, because you are my blood. With that, he stepped towards Rich and put his arms around him silently. Sebastian prodded me, and I turned to him. You knew about this? he said. I smiled. I knew all along that Robbie wasn't a killer, and I knew he couldn't have been in two places at once. You told me yourself that twin brothers would never deliberately hurt each other, but it doesn't mean they always get along. We must let them work things out privately, settle their differences brother to brother the way families should, the traditional Sechawa way. And as for you and me, I said, taking Sebastian's hand, we must too. It seems we're not immune to a little dangerous ambition either. It's time you and I also talked about family life, over dinner, and a very nice shabby. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed. Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt. The ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words. My story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. <laughs>